We are in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, because we want to know the Jesus of the Bible for ourselves firsthand. We don't want to read books about him. We want to see what he said, know what he did, understand what he taught for ourselves straight from his word. And last week, we saw Jesus in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a week-long feast, and Jesus has just been teaching on one of the large temple courtyard patio areas. And he's been doing this despite the fact that the religious leaders in Jerusalem are out to kill him. And as we ended our last study, the crowd was divided over Jesus. Some believed he was the long-promised savior of the world. Others dismissed him as someone who was simply deceiving the people. But even the religious leaders were astounded by the way that he spoke, especially as he had not attended any type of seminary. Jesus told these men who were out to kill him that they would find the truth when and if they decided to seek him with all of their heart. In other words, when you're serious about seeking the truth, you'll find it. When you want the truth more than you want your own beliefs confirmed, you will find the truth. When you're ready to receive the truth, whatever it looks like, it will come to you. This week, Jesus is going to make a huge announcement. He's going to publicly declare that he himself is everything that those who seek truth in life are looking for. It's him. Well, how can that be? Let's find out. Let me set the scene for you because th this next verse demands context or you miss what makes it so amazing. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, this week of celebration in Jerusalem that God has commanded all the Jews to celebrate. If you were within about a 50 mile radius of Jerusalem, you were required to come. If you were further away, it was highly encouraged. And this Feast of Tabernacles commemorated the time of Israel's wilderness wanderings, the season of history when Israel found herself enslaved in Egypt as a people, almost two million people, then freed miraculously by God through Moses and led to the promised land in the region of modern day Israel, even bigger than that actually. But in between Egypt and the promised land, there was these 40 years known as the wilderness wanderings where God miraculously took care of them and the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated, reminded them of how God took care of them during those 40 years. It was a festive time, the favorite holiday of all Jewish families and they would tell stories of what the Lord did for them in the wilderness, they would fill their kids' hearts and minds with word pictures and descriptions of the miracles God did. The city would be lit with torches to commemorate the way God miraculously led them in the wilderness as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And every day, right around the time the sun was rising, there would be these rituals going on at and around the temple. These would be massive events that would involve thousands or hundreds of thousands of spectators and participants. Historians tell us it took 446 priests just to administer the rituals during the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't have time to get into all the details of all the rituals, but I want to tell you about the most pertinent ritual to our text today. A priest would take a, a silver pitcher and walk as the head of a procession that had music playing behind him a distance of about 800 yards to a pool that was known as the Pool of Siloam, about 800 yards from the temple. Once he reached the pool, he would dip his pitcher in, fill it with water, and then walk back to the temple. When he reached the temple, he would ascend the altar, not the altar that was in the Holy of Holies, but the altar that was publicly visible. Everyone could see, so there'd be thousands or hundreds of thousands of people watching, and he would pour the water 
into a funnel that was on the top of the altar. As he was doing this, he would be joined by another priest who would pour a pitcher of wine into another funnel on the other side of the altar, and these funnels would lead down into a trough that went around the base of the altar. And to really understand this, you have to understand what the water and wine are representative of. The water was to commemorate, to remind Israel of how the Lord had provided water for them during the wilderness wanderings. You may recall the texts from the books of Exodus and Numbers. In Exodus 17, the Lord commands Moses to strike a rock with a staff, and water flows out of it to satiate the thirst of the people. In Numbers 20, the Lord commands Moses to speak to the rock, but Moses is so ticked off at the frustrating people he's been leading, he strikes the rock with a staff, which is a story for another day, but the water still miraculously flows. And then finally in Numbers 21, the people are commanded to sing to the Lord, and as they do, a dry well that they had dug fills with water and their thirst is satisfied. And by the end of this progression, they've had the realization the Lord wants them to, which is that there is water wherever they need it if they will simply call upon the Lord. Wherever they are, the water will flow. Wine is a common symbol in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. So for the first seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, it would be a joyous celebratory vibe as this ritual commemorated God providing for their thirst in the wilderness and the presence of his spirit leading them through the wilderness on their journey. But after the seven days, there would be a final eighth day, and that day would be very different from the seven days that came before it. When God commanded Israel to begin observing the Feast of Tabernacles, all the way back in the book of Leviticus, he said this, I put it on your outlines, for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. Other translations will say a solemn assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. So the eighth day was different. It was serious. It was somber. It was reflective. It was sacred. And on the eighth day, the priest would take a single golden pitcher to the pool of Siloam. There would be no music. The procession would be silent, and he would dip his pitcher in the pool, but raise it on an angle so that no water was actually caught in the pitcher. It was empty. And then he would walk back to the temple and pour this empty pitcher into the funnel on the altar, even though there's no water in it. And this was to symbolize that even though the children of Israel reached the promised land at the end of their wilderness wanderings, even though they didn't need water to be miraculously provided anymore because they had the Jordan River, they still had another thirst, a spiritual thirst that needed quenching. They still had this deep brokenness in their souls that came from being separated from God. Their rejection of God had created this gulf between them and God. And every time they offered a sacrifice at the temple, they would be reminded that they were not on God's level. They had a broken relationship with him. He was holy, he was perfect, and they were not. He was righteous, and, and they were still doing wrong. They were still sinning every single day. This empty picture would remind them that there was a deep spiritual thirst that needed satisfying, and it would look ahead prophetically to the one who would come one day, promised in the Bible, prophesied in the Bible, to come and satisfy that spiritual thirst of the people. So picture the scene. The, the empty pitcher is poured into the funnel on the altar. Hundreds of thousands of people 
are watching this around the temple. And, and if you're struggling to picture this, just know you see drawings of the temple. It doesn't seem that big. The temple complex at this time is 35 acres in size. You've got 35 acres of buildings and patios. So there really are hundreds of thousands of people there watching this. It's silent as they're watching the empty pitcher be poured out. And one of the priests would tell the people to bow their heads before reading out part of Isaiah 44, in which the Lord says, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. This was a future promise from God. Then a priest would offer a prayer on behalf of all the people praying along the lines of, oh Lord, send the one who will bring us your spirit. Send the one who will satisfy our spiritual thirst. Send the one who will refresh Israel. Send Messiah. Send the Savior. Send us freedom. Send us deliverance. And then the people would be asked to bow low to the ground and in silence offer their own prayer, echoing the same heart. Send Messiah. Send a Savior send the one who's going to satisfy the spiritual thirst. Well, let's jump into our text. In John 7, 37, we read, on the last day, so it's this eighth day, that great day of the feast. So can you picture the scene we've described? Hundreds of thousands of believers in absolute silence, all bowed down, praying for, longing for, hoping for, aching for a savior. It's so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. In that moment, with that scene and that image in your mind, it says... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? There's not a hint of rebellion in the voice of Jesus, just a strong, compassionate, factual call, an invitation. This is Jesus saying, the one you're waiting for, the one you're praying for right now, it's me. I'm here. Come. This rabbi from Galilee with no seminary training or degrees, who, who speaks like no one anyone has ever heard before, has just disregarded centuries of liturgy and ritual and ceremony by standing up and saying, I'm what all of this is about. The reason God asked you to do this is because it points to me. And I'm here right now. I believe there's two big applications here. The first is to the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. But secondly, it speaks to those of us who do believe in Jesus, but we're just spiritually dry. So let's look at this from the perspective of someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, and then we'll take a look from the other angle. One of the great questions when it comes to the meaning of one's life is the simple question, why? Why? Every goal that people have for their lives has a why behind it whether we realize it or not. There's a why behind your goals for your life. The reasons we want to get married, the, the reasons we want to have a family or have lots of money or have a great job 
are much deeper than those things. We want those things because we believe those things will give us the things that we really want. See, the person who wants lots of money wants lots of money because we believe that wealth will free us from worry or stress. That's what we really want. Or we believe that wealth will let us buy things that make us happy. What we really want is to be happy. Or wealth will at least help us buy things that other people want, which will make other people want to be like us, which will make us happy because we'll feel successful. We'll feel good about ourselves. Most people want to be married, not because they want to be married. They want to feel loved. People want to be successful in their career because they think then other people will respect them. They'll have power. They'll have influence, which will make their life matter. It'll matter that they lived. That's what they really want. There's always a why behind the things that we want. There's always something we want more. And the goals that we have in life are generally, outside of God, simply our best guesses as to what things will bring us the things that we really want in life. There's only one problem. Not all married people feel loved. Not all successful business people feel like they matter or are making a difference or are respected. Not all rich people are free of worry. And I've often thought that the reason you hear stories of famous, successful, beautiful people, wealthy people committing suicide, the reason you still hear those stories is because they got their hands on everything they ever wanted. They got all of their best guesses at what would make them happy. And it didn't. I've always thought, can you imagine a darker, more depressing place to be than being in the place where you have exhausted your best guess? Everything on your list of, if I have this, then my life will be perfect. Can you imagine checking off everything on that list? You get to the end, and you're still empty. That's a dark, dark place to be. And people reach that place every day. And it's compounded by the tragedy that sometimes they've given most of their life to get there. And this isn't just something that affects those who are wealthy. This affects the middle class, the poor. You might be a middle class person and and you're thinking, if I can just get this house and get this house paid off, have more disposable income, then then I'll have peace. I'll sleep better at night. What if you get there and those things don't happen? And that's been your life focus for 25 to 30 years of your life. And it doesn't do the trick. That's a dark, dark place to be. If you don't know Jesus, then you are most likely pursuing the things in life that are just your best guesses at what will make your life wonderful. To the non-believer, to the one who's hoping their life goals will bring satisfaction and freedom when those things are as empty as the pitcher that the priest would pour out on the altar on the eighth day. To that person, Jesus says, I am what you're looking for. I'm freedom. I'm hope. I'm peace. I'm life. I am meaning. I'm love and I'm here now. I'm not a 30-year plan. I'm here now. Just as the people of Israel had a greater, deeper need than anything physical, they recognized that they needed more than just the promised land. Even though it would have been very easy to say, hey, when we get to the promised land, man, everything will be a okay 
they still recognize, no, we still have a deeper need than that. So too, you and I have a greater, deeper need than anything that can be satisfied in the physical universe. We have an aching spiritual need. God created us and he created us to know him, to be in a relationship with him. And there's nothing in this life that is an adequate substitute for that. We were created for it. God is the only one who knows why you exist. He's the only one who knows what you were created for. And you can't fill that void or make up for that missing ingredient in your life with a nicer car or a bigger house or a promotion. We need a restored relationship with God. And in just a couple of sentences, Jesus lays out a solution, the plan known as the gospel. We're gonna make some notes here in your outline. He says, if anyone thirsts, so he says it starts with recognizing that we have a need. We are indeed thirsty and lacking. It begins with saying, I'm thirsty. So it begins with recognizing our need. We gotta recognize our need. That's the first step in the gospel. That's the ground floor of the gospel. Then he says, let him come to me and drink. The next step is we have to recognize that Jesus is what and whom we need. He's the one we've been searching for. He says, come to me. Don't waste your whole life pursuing empty things. So right, we need to recognize our need can only be satisfied by Jesus. Our need can only be satisfied by Jesus. And then he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's offering life and freedom refreshment all the days of your life and Jesus is offering it right now. So write this down. The third step is you receive abundant life in Jesus that starts now. And I wish I could stress this intensely enough. Jesus is saying all of those things that you're gonna spend your life pursuing, all of the reasons behind the goals that you have for life, all the things you really want that you believe these empty things will give you, he says, I'll give them all to you right now. I'll give you peace now. I'll give you joy now. I'll give you hope and life and love now. And I'll give it to you in such a deep way that the circumstances of your life will have nothing to do with them. I'm gonna set you free in the way that your freedom is no longer gonna be connected to your bank account. Your peace is not gonna be connected to the circumstances in your life. You're gonna have a peace and a hope and a life and a joy that can't be stolen from you. It's not wrapped up in a physical object that you can lose. It's wrapped up in Jesus who loses nothing. He says, I'm offering you everything right now. Life and life in abundance. Jesus is declaring that all we crave is really found in him and only in him. To the one who doesn't know him yet, Jesus says, come to me. I'm here. I'm what you're looking for. But I believe the words of Jesus are not just for those who don't know him yet, but they're for those who do know him. But if you're honest, you would say, I know him. I love him. I take him seriously. But I'm just so dry. I am just so spiritually dry. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel was given a vision by the Lord, a vision of the river of life that flows in the new Jerusalem that we read about in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, the river of the Holy Spirit. And in his vision, Ezekiel is led to where the river begins. It begins at the temple, at the presence of God. 
Then he's led about 560 yards downstream and he's invited into the water and he goes in up to his ankles. Then he's called to go 560 yards further down the river. He's invited into the river again, but this time it goes up to his knees. Goes another 560 yards. This time it's up to his waist. He goes another 560 yards and he can't even touch the bottom anymore. And he says, this is not a river a man can stand in. This is a river a man must swim in. This is a river where you lose control and you are carried by the current. You're going to be taken wherever the river flows. Write this down. Do you realize that the Lord will give you as much of himself as you want? The Lord will give you as much of himself as you want. No more, no less. He will give you as much of himself as you want. Some people are saved, they're baptized, and they are locks to attend church on Christmas and Easter. You can set your watch by their attendance. They're up to their ankles. Some people go deeper in the Lord, and they belong to a church family. They have their own prayer life. They're in the Word. They're up to their knees. That's awesome. Some people go even deeper, and they begin to pray for those around them, and they begin to filter all of their life decisions through what the Word of God says. He's central to what they do. But others go all the way into the river. And they say, my life, everything in my life, everything I have, God, it's yours. What what do you want to do? Where do you want us to go? It's all available to you. And their only goal is to do the will of God and be swept up in the river of life, carried where the Lord leads them into the relationships the Lord leads them to, the interactions, the career the Lord leads them to, the geographic location the Lord leads them to. Are you dry this morning? Are you feeling like 90% of your body is out of the river? Or maybe you're in up to your waist, but the rest of you is just, just dry. The Lord will give you as much of himself as you want. No more, no less. And I believe that when you and I find ourselves in that place of spiritual dryness, and I know we do, the words of Jesus are for us too. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the pattern of the gospel is still true for those of us who find ourselves feeling spiritually dry. It begins with identifying our own spiritual dryness. It begins with the awareness that we're dry and being discontent, being dissatisfied over our spiritual condition, realizing that I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty, Lord. And then secondly, we have to reach the place where we stop wallowing in our dryness. We stop soaking in our apathy. We stop sitting in our spiritual numbness and we do something. We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. We have to stop waiting. We have to stop blaming God for our spiritual condition. We need to go to him. And that can happen a lot of different ways, through prayer, through his word, through worship, through communion. But but here's the kicker. Jesus says, come to me and drink. And that means we have to stop caring about what anybody else thinks. And we have to get desperate for the Lord. And that's generally our biggest obstacle because we have to come before the Lord in humility. We have to confess in humility, God, I'm dry. I need you. 
And then we have to stand on that promise. You said if anyone is thirsty and they come to you, out of them will flow rivers of living water. And Lord, I need that. I need that. There's no formula to it, but what I do know is you need to care more about wanting God than you care about what anybody else thinks of you. If you're in worship, you have to be willing to press into the presence of God. Lift your hands, believe that his spirit's gonna come upon you. You have to be okay with weeping if that's what the Lord wants to do in you. You have to be willing to walk and pray if that's what it takes for you to get alone with God. You have to have a heart that says, all I want is for you to be glorified in my life, Lord. I wanna be carried away. I wanna be caught up in your spirit. You have to be willing to drink. You have to be more desperate for his spirit than you are to appear that you've got it all together. Stop pretending that we're self-sufficient and freely confess that we need him. Go to Jesus and drink. His, his offer stands for you and for me because we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us on a regular basis. If the Holy Spirit came upon you when you were a teenager at camp or when you first got saved, I've got news for you. You need it again. We need personal revival. We need refreshing. We need to be empowered by His Spirit over and over and over again. I need it. You need it. And I miss the kinds of churches now where the steps up the stage would be crowded during the times of worship and prayer with people who didn't care who saw them, people who would fall to their knees and confess, Lord, I'm dry. And it wasn't pretty. There's a lot of crying and ugly crying. But today we're generally so concerned that things like that might make someone uncomfortable. So instead, let's all just pretend that we're fine. But among the mess and the awkwardness of bent knees and streaming tears were men and women drinking of the river of life, being refreshed, being revived. Most of those people were a mess at church, but they were held together when they left church and walked into the trials of life. How many of us keep it together at church and then walk out of here and fall apart during the trials of life? We need a desperation for the Holy Spirit. We need a holy discontent with being spiritually dry. Zoologists tell us, this is a bizarre fact, a hippo will cross an entire continent in search of water. Hippos are fat if you don't know this. They'll cross a whole continent in search of water. You know the distance from your knees to the floor is much shorter. The distance between your hands at your side and your hands raised is much shorter. The distance from your chair to the table of communion is much shorter. A hippo will cross a continent to satisfy their thirst. How about you? How far will you go to satisfy your spiritual thirst? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He goes on in the back half of verse 39 and it says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
And this is interesting because apparently there was a prerequisite that had to be fulfilled before the Holy Spirit could really come upon all believers. There was something that had to take place first. Jesus had to be glorified. He had to be raised from the dead, returned to his full God state, be seated with the Father in heaven, receiving glory. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers in Acts 2, what does that mean? It means Jesus has been glorified in heaven. So how does the crowd react to Jesus standing up and making this declaration? What I find interesting is the temple guard don't rush to arrest him. Nobody tackles him. Everyone just knows this. there's something going on here. In verse 40, it says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. So some of them think Jesus is the return of Elijah or the return of Moses. Others said, This is the Christ. Others immediately realize what Jesus has said and what's just happened. They get it and they believe right there and then. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? And here's where this is coming from. If you look at a map of Israel, you have Judea in the south. That's where Jerusalem is. Then you have Samaria, the mixed ethnicity Jews, half Jews, half Assyrians, who are in ethnic sort of conflict with the Jews. They don't like each other. They don't mix. Samaria's in the middle. Then above Samaria, you have Galilee. Galilee is like the blue-collar region of Israel. If you were a legitimate academic, a rabbi or a teacher, you lived in Judea, probably in Jerusalem. So Galilee was basically the sticks. So what they're saying is they're like, really, the Messiah is going to come from Galilee? Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So once again, we have people judging from appearance. We know for a fact Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of the census that took every man back to the town where he was born, but he was raised in Galilee, in Nazareth. He had simply been living in Galilee pretty much his whole life. But because they were not seeking the Lord with their whole hearts, because they weren't seeking him with sincerity, some of the people jumped on this misinformation and they just used it as an excuse to not receive Jesus as Messiah. He's not from Bethlehem, he's from Galilee. Show us the birth certificate, they demanded. And we still see this to this day. We see people who will jump on something that's not true at all, but immediately believe it, not verify it. I see this on the internet all the time, people passing around myths about Christianity and the origins of Christianity. They obviously haven't researched if it's even true. They're just eager to believe whatever statement will allow them to remain on the course that they're currently on in life. That's what they're looking for, confirmation bias. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him. They wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The Jesus of the Bible is so different to the Jesus of pop culture. The Jesus of the Bible was not the great uniter. He's the great divider. <laughs> he came to draw a line in the sand between the light and the dark so that we could join him in the light. Again, it was not yet his time to be arrested and murdered, so no one could touch him supernaturally. We don't really even know what happens there. As we've mentioned before, earlier times, people try to arrest him, and it says he just slipped through the crowd. He becomes imperceivable to people. They just can't see him, or they're in such a frenzy, they don't even notice him anymore. And Apparently, something similar happened here. As a side note, this is interesting. After Jesus' death, only loving hands will touch him, and only loving eyes will see him. After his resurrection, 
He will not have a single encounter with a hostile person, will not be touched or seen by another hostile person. I love how this next scene unfolds. The temple guard was a, a relatively small group of soldiers who had authority over the temple mount. Rome is ruling Israel at this time, as we know, and they don't allow any country that they're occupying to have their own army for obvious reasons. However, they realized that because of the spiritual importance of the temple mount to Jews, there would be a riot if a bunch of Roman soldiers ever went on the temple mount to deal with an issue. So as a solution, Rome allowed the Jewish religious authorities to administer the Temple Mount with a small armed group known as the Temple Guard. The Temple Guard could also be used outside the Temple Mount to solve religious issues that didn't involve Roman law. So now remember, the chief priests and the Pharisees have sent the Temple Guard in our last study to arrest Jesus. This is about four days later, and the Temple Guard come back. They report back. It says in verse 45, then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? So they show up, but they don't have Jesus. The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. The temple guard are all religiously trained guys and, and they go to arrest Jesus and instead they end up being arrested by Jesus. They heard him teaching the crowd and, and they're all able to perceive, I don't know what's going on here, but it's something profound it's something holy, it's something sacred. And you imagine them having the conversation, you know, okay, Levi, you go arrest him. I'm not gonna arrest him. Simon, you go arrest him. I'm not gonna arrest you go arrest him. Nobody wants to arrest Jesus. And so they come back empty handed and they basically tell the chief priests and Pharisees, you arrest him, we're not touching the guy. In verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? The irony of their mocking question is tragic. They believe they are so wise, so well-versed in their field that it is an impossibility that they could ever be deceived or misled or come to the wrong conclusions. And yet that is exactly what they've done. It's not hard to see a parallel to some of the vocal atheist geniuses of our day who mock the idea of God. They're so convinced we're simpletons for believing in God and that they're simply too smart and educated to fall for such folly, blind to the truth that they themselves are missing the forest for the trees, while studying a universe with infinite galaxies, billions and billions of galaxies, while studying biology on a planet that by their own math has no probability of existing, is a mathematical impossibility, they will cry out, where is the evidence of God? Verse 48, Pharisees keep speaking and they say, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? We haven't believed in this guy, follow our example. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So in other words, these people who are following Jesus, they're under a curse because they don't know what we know, they're being deceived by Jesus. Now this is interesting because speaking of people who know the law, speaking of Pharisees who believe in Jesus, guess who speaks up? Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, back in John 3, being one of them, he was a Pharisee, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? You might remember that about a year and a half ago in John 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, the most prominent teacher in Israel, a man whom Jesus himself called the teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus at night in secret to find out for himself if Jesus really is the Messiah. 
And here in John 7, we find Nicodemus having moved almost from night to twilight in his pursuit of Jesus. In a hostile room, he's the lone voice that speaks up in a muted defense of Jesus. Later on in John 19, we'll see the faith of Nicodemus move all the way into daylight because he joins with Joseph of Arimathea in taking down the body of Jesus from the cross, dressing it for burial, and placing it in the tomb. So get this, the religious leaders claim that the crowd doesn't know the law. Nicodemus quotes their own procedural law to them and points out, you need to hear from Jesus directly and know what he's saying before you condemn him. But as is always the case, when a person has made up their mind to not receive Jesus, they won't confront the facts. They'll just move on to the next issue. And that's exactly what happens here. You'll notice they don't actually address the point that Nicodemus has made. Instead, verse 52, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Again, they're wrong. Two prophets out of Galilee, Jonah and Nahum. There may be several others, Hosea, Elijah, Elisha, Amos, we don't know for sure, but we know for sure Jonah and Nahum came from Galilee, and they don't know it. They're deceived. And in fact, the Messiah, having a ministry in Galilee, was prophesied in Isaiah 9. Last two verses, and I really want us to notice this, because Jesus has had, by anyone's standards, an eventful week. They've tried to arrest him. They've tried to murder him. All of Jerusalem is buzzing about him and divided in their opinion of him. And how does Jesus respond? Obviously, he takes to Facebook. No, he doesn't. It says, verse 53, and everyone went to his own house. Verse one of the next chapter, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everyone goes home and Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives where we know he goes to do what? He goes to pray. That's how Jesus kept his sanity. That's how Jesus kept his peace. That's how he recharged his emotional and spiritual enemy. That's how Jesus didn't get caught up in bitterness with the religious leaders. That's how he stayed on course, on task, on mission. That's how he processed things with his father. He prayed. Get this. Even Jesus needed personal revival on a regular basis. Even Jesus needed personal revival. He needed to be regularly refreshed by having the Holy Spirit come upon him. You see, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, it's in you, a deposit guaranteeing your salvation. That's not the question. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have you you have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have you? Are you up to your ankles? Are you up to your waist? Or does he have all of you? Your heavenly Father, as he did for Jesus, always has time for you. When you're a mess, or whether you're dry, whether the emotions are flowing or your heart is hard, you can come to the Father and share that. He's always got time for you because he loves you. You are the most important thing on his agenda today, right now. He's big enough for that to be true for all of us. He loves you. Don't forget that. In closing, let me remind you what Jesus said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart 
will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is not talking about a one-time filling here. The picture is not a water bottle that just magically never goes empty. The picture is a river that flows where the water is always flesh, the fresh. The Spirit of God is supposed to give us that type of spiritual vibrancy. So, so why don't we have it? I would suggest that for a lot of us, the main reason is we're too easily satisfied. We say, that's enough, thank you. Because we view our need for God compartmentally. And here's what I mean by that. We look at our lives and we say, okay, I need some of God for this challenge over here. I need some of God for this relationship over here. I need some of God to help me get through bitterness over here. And we give the Holy Spirit assignments in our life. When God's design is really, hey, you need me every moment of every day in everything. You can do nothing on your own. And sometimes we find ourselves spiritually dry because we check off everything on the list. No huge challenges right now. I think everything is adequate. And we don't view ourselves as just needing God just to be, just for every moment of every day. I need him every second of every day. I need him desperately. And if we'll pursue him desperately, freely confessing our need for him with a righteous fear of going through even one day without him, he will refresh us. Every day he'll do it. I hope that your confession to the Lord today will be, God, I need you. I need you. God will give you as much of himself as you want. No more, no less. Perhaps, if you're honest, your greatest challenge this morning is simply wanting more of God. And what I mean by that is you find yourself spiritually dry, but if you're honest, you are not desperate for God. But you wish you were. You want to want him. You know you need him. You know nothing else will satisfy or refresh your life but him. You want to want him. You desire to desire him. The Bible tells us that even our desire for him comes from him. We can't even desire the right things without him. We can't even want him without him. But here's the good news. He wants to give you those good desires. He wants to fill your emotions and your longings with himself. If that's where you find yourself this morning, in the place of wanting to want him, just know that he'll meet you there. He'll start working there. Just confess that to him. Admit that you're thirsty to be thirsty, and he'll meet you there. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we need you. God, oh, how we need you. Every moment, every day, nothing we do apart from you has any meaning or purpose. And everything that this life has to offer us that is not you, temporary distractions or even temporary blessings, you're the meaning of everything, God. Lord, for those of us who are spiritually dry this morning, we just confess that we are dry. And we need you, God. We need your spirit. We don't want to stay this way. We don't want to be up to our knees. We don't want to be up to our ankles. We don't want to be up to our waist, Lord. We, 
We want to be caught up in you, immersed in you. We want you to have us as we have you. So, Father, I pray for every heart that is hard this morning intentionally or not intentionally. I pray that you would break those hearts wide open with your presence, with your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord. Would it be fresh again? Would every single one of us be able to say again today, there is nothing like knowing you. And not say it out of a memory or out of a past experience, but out of a present reality. There is nothing like you. Holy Spirit, would you revive us individually, personally, with your spirit this morning, Lord. Come upon us, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.